welcome to this week's episode of the Power of PMS podcast. This week, I have Mandy Chambliss with me. And as many of you might not know, September is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Mandy is a ovarian cancer survivor, and she has a very difficult and also, I think, on some levels, a very positive story when it comes to being a survivor of cancer. Um, Her story is very touching, and she's been doing a lot of promotion this month for ovarian cancer awareness, and I thought it would be a really great opportunity to have her on and talk about her experiences. Um, So welcome, Mandy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. thank you for coming. Um, So really quick, short intro of how we know each other. Um, We used to work together, um, together separately, in a sense. So we are both um, trainers and support for a manufacturer. And Mm -hmm. we see each other at kind of group trainer events. But I think we really kind of got to know each other and foster our relationship mostly through Facebook. And (laughs) yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we've had some, some fun ways that our paths have crossed over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, today we're going to have you on to talk about your experience with ovarian cancer because it's, um, it's one of those things that, as you have mentioned to me and I've seen in a lot of your posts, especially this month, um, there's not a lot of talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very difficult to diagnose. Yeah. Absolutely. I will will let you expand on that. Um, So why don't we start with talking a little bit about your diagnosis and how that came about? Yeah. So I think the easiest way to start this is really to explain the experience that I had before I even knew what was going on. And um, so I'll start back in about October of 2009. Um, I was actually in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and I was doing a presentation for hearing impaired uh, patients. And just some strange things started happening while I was standing up in front of a room of multiple people staring right at you. And you don't that's not necessarily the greatest situation to be in when all of a sudden your body kind of starts to fail you, but that's exactly what happened. And so for three months after that, I just, I was experiencing the strangest symptoms and it started out with kind of like this lower back pain. Um, I was also training for a half marathon at that point in time, and my stomach was getting bigger, and I didn't understand. I was only 28 years old, by the way, at the time, mm-hmm. and um, there was just no reason for me to be gaining weight like this, but I was, and so the biggest symptom that I had is something that I don't really talk about a lot on social media or whatever, um, but it, it does beg being discussed. And the reason being is it is the reason that took me to the doctor in the first place. Mm-hmm. So with advanced stage cancer, there's something called ascites, ascites. I never remember how to say the word, but it's fluid buildup that is caused by advanced stage cancer. I started to experience that. And when that started happening to me, I knew something was wrong because the thing is you can explain away weight gain, right? I mean, you can explain away lower back pain. I was working out a lot. I mean, body aches, whatever. Mm -hmm. You can explain all this stuff away, but when you have fluid, that's not supposed to be there, Mm -hmm. that is what led me to the doctor. And so while it was a very stressful and uncomfortable situation, it, it saved my life ultimately. And so this led me to going to ultimately, gosh, how many, like four or five different doctors, misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis. And that's the problem with ovarian cancer. It is very, very common to be misdiagnosed. These symptoms that I've told you about, they kind of mimic other less serious issues, gastrointestinal Mm -hmm. issues, maybe even pregnancy or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, really common to be misdiagnosed. The problem with this is that when you are misdiagnosed, your cancer continues to progress. Mm -hmm. So with ovarian cancer, it's very common for it not to be diagnosed until the later stages. Okay. And so the unfortunate thing for me, this fluid buildup this is something that occurs in late stage cancer. So 
that was my first symptom, right? That's the first mm-hmm. thing I, I noticed that something was wrong. So I was already at late stage okay. before that even started, before the mm-hmm. back pain started, before the stomach aches and the, you know, the weight gain. Mm-hmm. And this is unfortunately incredibly common. So what happens with this is you start to, um, get a decrease in survival rates, unfortunately. And we'll talk about, you know, I guess if you want to call it my expiration date, what I was given, we can talk about that in a bit as well. But just to give you an understanding of how I got to where I am and why it took so long Mm -hmm. to get an answer. Um, So for three months, I was going to doctor after doctor. I can't even tell you how many times I heard you're too young family history that I just found out about thanks to ancestry.com. I'm not a lot of stuff on ancestry.com, but my paternal grandfather never knew his father. Uh, through some research, I ended up tracking down one of my dad's cousins. We had a conversation and guess what? <laughs> one of my like great, great grandmothers or aunts or someone died from ovarian cancer. So I've kind of been spent all of this time thinking no family history whatsoever and absolutely unsure of why you ended up having ovarian cancer to find out that somebody, you know, decades ago in your family did in fact pass from it. Absolutely. So just because you don't know everything about your family history doesn't mean you don't have one. Mm -hmm. So this leads me to screaming my, my mantra for years, you have to be your own advocate, right? The doctors don't have your family history. If you don't have your family history. So here I am too young for cancer and I'm using, you know, air quotes right now, too young Mm -hmm. for cancer. And, um, no family history again with the air quotes. And so instead I was tested for, oh my gosh, girl. The first thing was a test that they do on, um, for bladder fistulas. And basically what that is, it's a, it's a hole between your bladder and your uterus. So remember Mm -hmm. I had this fluid, right? right? So they were thinking maybe my bladder, maybe my urine is leaking through my, my uterus. And that's what this fluid was. So this doctor says to me, I'm going to test you for a bladder fistula. Now, most of the time, this only happens in third world countries where women are brutally raped. And I'm like, oh, cool. So this sounds like a legit place to start. I mean, really? Yeah, that seems a little. This is what happens with ovarian cancer. Yeah, a little off. So, of course, the test was negative. Um, And so we went. And at some point... Doctor number two told me, I may just have to tell you that this is how you are now. That's not good enough. Not an answer for anybody. Not an answer for anyone, right? Exactly. Especially when you're randomly leaking fluid out of your body Mm -hmm. and have no explanation for it. That's not an acceptable answer. Yeah, I know. And so thankfully, I remained my own advocate and I asked for a second opinion which ended up being a third opinion, maybe even a fourth at this time. Um, And I finally was referred to a doctor that did an ultrasound and they found a mass the size of a cantaloupe. But guess what? Don't worry. Yeah. And and you would think you can't feel it. I couldn't feel it. I mean, my stomach was getting bigger, but I couldn't physically feel it. That's so what still amazes me about your story is, I mean, the fact that you can have something the size of a cantaloupe growing in your midsection and not feel something like that. Couldn't even feel it. Yeah. So therein lies the misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis. I can't feel it. No one's offering an ultrasound. We don't know that there's anything in there. Mm -hmm. So, so we do the ultrasound. It's a mass the size of a cantaloupe, but don't worry you are too young. You have no family history. It's not cancer. Now this doctor said, but you know, you've got something in there that's not supposed to be in there. So let's mm-hmm. get it removed. And I said, okay, well, what are you doing on Friday? Cause this has got to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the fact that I had something inside my body that was not supposed to be there just really weirded me out. And I wasn't Mm -hmm. even thinking about cancer at this point because I I kept being told not to, but I just wanted it gone. So we get um, surgery scheduled and um, it's just supposed to be a laparoscopic procedure that lasts 90 minutes tops. I believe is what they told me an hour to 90 minutes tops. So I was more nervous about the IV. <laughs> that was like my biggest fear for the entire day needles. was this IV. <laughs> so you see where my priorities were at this point. I had no idea. Well, needles and are scary. Yes. Needles are scary. <laughs> I can, I, we'll talk about some things that are scarier that I know about now, but at Definitely. that point, needles were scary. So, so I uh, go in for surgery and my surgery started at 7 a.m. And I remember for a split second waking up in the recovery room and there's, you know, like one of those big red digital clocks or whatever, mm-hmm. right in front of me on the wall. Yeah. And it said like 1124. And I remember thinking, well, that's not good. This was only supposed to last an hour. And then I was gone again. Like it was just that quick. I woke up for a split yeah. second and then I was out again. And then the next time I wake up, It's to someone's voice and it was the nurse dictating next to my bed. And I hear her saying 28 year old female malignant neoplastic ovaries. And I had enough time to say, okay, that's not good. That's me. Mm -hmm. She's talking about. Mm -hmm. So that's how I found out that I had cancer. And while it sounds traumatic, right? (laughs) Like, well, I mean, absolutely. Especially after so many doctor visits, you're being told it can't be cancer. It can't be cancer. Don't worry about it. So that's what you do. You basically mentally prepare yourself and get yourself thinking that's not what it is. And you don't even get an opportunity to hear it from the doctor or the whole, we went in, this is what we found. So I mean, you're literally waking up from surgery and that's the first thing you hear. Yep. I mean, it's just, I, I can't even wrap my brain around it, no matter how many times I hear you tell the story. I know, I know. And, but I'll say this, and this may sound surprising, but I think anybody could relate. I'm so thankful that that's how I found out because while this was going on, my family is in the other room, first off, in shock, secondly, mm-hmm. trying to process this. Sure. Thirdly, trying to figure out how on earth they were going to tell me mm-hmm. they didn't have to. Yeah. So even though the experience of found, finding out that way sucked, <laughs> um, it kept my family from having to say the words. Mm-hmm. And for that, I'm thankful. I don't know a lot about what was going on while I was in the recovery room and it's mm-hmm. been 11, well, it's been 11 and a half years, almost 12 years now. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to know. Um, you've probably seen me post before. It's really hard to be the reason everyone around you was trying not to cry. Yeah. And that has uh, been a defining factor in my life for almost 12 years now. It's because it never goes away. Yeah. Even 12 years later, it never goes away. And we can definitely talk about that as well. Sure. But it's really hard being the reason everyone around you is trying not to cry. So while they still had my family, I put them through a lot. And there's a lot of guilt that goes along with that. At least at a minimum, they didn't have to be the ones to tell me. Yeah. So silver linings. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, yeah. you look for them wherever you can. Right. So um, that's how, that's how I was diagnosed. That's how I found out. And then the next time I woke up, I heard tears around me. I'm, I can tell I'm being wheeled down the hallway and I open up my eyes and my mom and my dad and my brother were leaning over me and they were crying and they were just kind of, you know, like patting my hair and it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I looked up at my dad and I said, daddy, they took everything, didn't they? And he said, yes, baby, they did. And I said, I have cancer, don't I? And he said, yes, baby, you do. And then I was asleep again. Um, so that is the story <laughs> of my diagnosis and, and, and how I got to where 
I am today. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> That's like, how do you even begin to unpack that? There we are, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the fact that you've been retelling the story for almost 12 years and you can just still feel, and I can see the raw emotion from you and yeah, how that's not something that ever goes away. It just, it sticks with you and you do what you can to move forward, which is kind of my next question is, so you went through treatment. I did. Yep. Um, was it chemo and radiation or? So I didn't do radiation. I had, um, six rounds of chemo, basically, um, six rounds of a couple of different cocktails as we call Mm -hmm. them. One of them is called intraperitoneal chemo. And it's actually so kind of brutal that it's not a standard regimen anymore. So yay for Mm -hmm. me being one of the last ones to get to do it, I guess Mm -hmm. it's so bad that they've stopped. It doesn't, it hasn't even been shown to prolong lifespan. Oh, wow. So ultimately it's just not worth it. Got it. Um, and just to give you an idea of what that is, they fill up your abdomen um, with two liters of chemo and you kind of flop around on a bed like a fish. Like you lay on one side for an hour, you lay on your back for an hour, you flip over on your other side for an hour. So the idea is the chemo was coating the inside of your abdomen to hopefully kill off any cancer cells that have metastasized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is it's rough. So I, yeah, it was absolutely miserable. Um, but I'm thankful for it because I'm here. Right. So, so yeah, that was my treatment. Something else that, uh, I think warrants discussion here before we move on to Mm -hmm. the part that I like to talk about, I think the Mm -hmm. most is the after there is no screening for ovarian cancer, right? Your pap smear does not test for ovarian cancer. When you go in for your annual appointments, well women appointments, you are not being tested for ovarian cancer. So there again, if you think about the misdiagnosis on top of the fact that there's no screening, this is why survival rates are so incredibly low. So if someone is experiencing lower back pain, kind of unexplained weight gain, things like that, would Mm -hmm. I'm assuming, but I don't want to talk for you, but go to your doctor, explain your symptoms. And I mean, I would rather be over tested and have my doctor come back and say, you're good versus, you know, unfortunately have to go the path that you did where it's just misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis. Absolutely. Um, Are you finding or have you found, or do you know when it comes to things like that? I mean, if people are going to their OBs or primary care physicians, things like that. Um, Our doctors are, you feel trained well enough to think, well, these are symptoms of ovarian cancer, we should look into it, or has there not been much progress made in the last 12 years? Well, I'll say the survival rates have increased some, Mm -hmm. but they have increased a little bit. So in my mind, that tells me something has shifted. Is it the treatment? I don't know. Is it awareness that has to have something to do with it? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the doctor. I mean, the doctor that I went to originally, she was my gynecologist since I was a teenager. Uh So that's the reason I went to her. I was living in Dallas at the time, but I went to my hometown specifically because she knew my history Mm -hmm. and, and I was still misdiagnosed. She will never do it again. Will she? She'll never do it again. And my heart goes out to her too, because she's human. She did the best she could in the circumstances with the knowledge that she had. So I have people ask me, are you angry with her? No, I forgive her. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I I'm sad for her because I know, (laughs) I know that this is a heavy cross to bear, but I also know she learned from it. And she's going to be much more diligent now. So I do think because of situations like mine, awareness is increasing. Um, so just to, just to reiterate, because this is very, very important, the symptoms. Mm-hmm. You're looking for, if you feel bloated, 
if you're feeling full without really eating very much, or you're not even very hungry often, okay. frequent urination, changes in like bowel habits as well, uh, fatigue, lower back pain or abdominal pain. Those are the things we're looking for. So if you're anything like me, your lower back hurts and you're like, eh, well, before my cancer diagnosis, now my big toe hurts and sometimes I freak out. <laughs> but before my cancer diagnosis, I'm just going it, to, it's going to go away. You know, I'm just going to give mm-hmm. it some time. And I think that's a normal human response. Right. When these things start to add up, you have to be your own advocate. And if the doctor says you're fine, everything's fine, and you deep within your soul know that it's not fine, you get a second opinion and you push forward. Had I listened to the doctor that said this may just be how you are now, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation right, right now. I wouldn't be here to have it. So yes, I always recommend pursuing second opinions, mm-hmm. just pursuing doctors, but also acknowledging that doctors are human as well. Right. So you have to, you have to own it for yourself. So once you completed treatment, um, and I can see, I mean, just based on every symptom you just listed, I imagine that's something all of us pretty much experience day in and day out. Of course. Like you said, we can explain it away with, oh, I had a, you know, really hard workout yesterday. My lower back hurts today from, Mm -hmm. you know, kicks and punches with kickboxing. Um, Or, you know, if you're bloating up, oh, well, it must be, you know coming up on that time in the month and things like that. So, um, no, I, I appreciate you keep coming back to that because Mm -hmm. I think again, with how common all of those symptoms are, you really need to pay attention. And I mean, I think one thing too, is you have to know your own body. You have Mm -hmm. to know that this is not normal for me. And then like you said, continue to be your own advocate. Diligent Um, about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, So once you mentioned, I'm sorry. So you had said that um, we're kind of moving to the part you really like to talk about and that's Mm -hmm. the, the after. Yeah. So we, you had surgery treatment and then what, what comes next Mm, for you? Exactly. What comes next? That's the question. That's the question of my life. Yeah. So it's funny that I say that I like to talk about this part uh, because (laughs) it was harder than the diagnosis and the chemo itself. Mm -hmm. So it's, but I like to talk about it because it's the parts that people don't talk about. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's really important to see that this is not a death sentence. It doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. There is, there's life after chemo, there's life after cancer. Um, the hard part starts when chemo stops though. And that's something I wasn't expecting because people didn't talk about that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> before we really dive into how this changed me, as you know, very well, I was actually married to someone else at the time. hmm And we separated two weeks after I came home from the hospital. So to add, I guess, salt to the wound, insult to injury, however you Mm -hmm. want to say, Mm -hmm. not only am I fighting for my life, I'm also getting divorced at the same time. So um, yeah, (laughs) my ex-husband had addiction issues Mm -hmm. and, you know, at that point in time, kind of wasn't even capable of taking care of himself. So how on earth could I have expected him to be able to take care of me? Mm -hmm. And it's taken years of work, years of self-introspection and learning about forgiveness to move on from this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I said in sickness and in health, I meant it. And I think he wanted to mean it. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big part of the story Um, so the hard part starts after chemo and specifically for me, my mom moved in with me to take care of me Mm -hmm. after he moved out. And so the day I told her, you, you have to go home. I'm with chemo. You head back to your life. I somehow have to figure out what, who I am now 
-hmm. what my life even is going to look like from this point. And so that moment that she walked out the door and drove away is just, it's hard to think about. I cannot even think about what happened, what went on in that car on her drive home. But I can tell you what I did as I stood in my living room for a good solid hour without moving, bald, <laughs> not a hair on my head or on my body, bald, separated from my husband, completely alone, and trying to figure out what next. Um, I had, I had been told that I had a 20% chance to live five years. And so when chemo ended, there was this fear of, well, my armor has been taken off of me, mm-hmm. you know, like, I mean, chemo is horrible, mm-hmm. but at least when I was going through chemo, my numbers were getting better. The, the, the cancer was going away, mm-hmm. or at least going dormant. And what's going to happen when it stops. So you're covered in this cloud of fear. And so when my mom drove away and I stood in the living room, bald, having just gone through the fight for my life and, and separated, that's when, the, that's when the struggle began. That's when the challenge began. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all of that within itself is hard enough, but add it all together is really hard. So, so that led to, I mean, honestly, kind of a loss of self for a while. Who am I? I had no idea. Um, it led to changes in relationships. So a few months later, I finished chemo in July of 2009. And in March, I, well, got divorced. <laughs> it was finalized. And then I picked up and I moved from Dallas to Austin and I started over. And what that meant was a lot of my relationships changed. So mm-hmm. a lot of my friendships that I have now aren't the same mm-hmm. people that they were before. And it's no one's fault. It's just, they, you know, sometimes people don't know what to do with you. They don't, they have a hard time even looking you in the eyes. Yeah. And so it was hard for them. And so I have guilt about that, but it was also hard for me because of the reminders. Everyone that was there was a reminder of what had happened. Mm -hmm. And so my relationships took a total shift when I moved. Mm -hmm. And it was nice to have friends that weren't there yeah. During the process, you know, yeah. I was just Mandy to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was great, but it was really, really hard. And, you know, you probably saw my post, I believe it was this morning that was shared uh, from a friend of mine. She had asked me to kind of talk about, I'm going to pull this up while I'm looking at it because I, or while I'm telling you about it, because I think it's so important. She had asked me what kind of advice would you give another cancer survivor mm-hmm. if you had to? And my mm-hmm. mind, it doesn't go to like what kind of wig to get. It doesn't go to, um, you know, what to do during chemo to help with nausea. My mind goes to the after and I've always yeah. called it the after. <laughs> so I'm just going to read this to you because it's sure. this, this is so important to me. So what I responded with was when asked what I want those diagnosed with ovarian cancer to know. I think about what I wish I had been told, not necessarily things about side effects from, from chemo or the like, but more of the emotional scars that no one talks about. Sometimes alongside a cancer diagnosis comes the pressure to be a hero. Mm -hmm. Yes. People will say you're such an inspiration and this may force you to slap a smile on even when you don't want to, but don't misunderstand This isn't necessarily a bad thing unless you allow it to discount your feelings and the emotions that you deserve and need to release. Step down off that pedestal you may have been unwillingly put on, rip off that hypothetical cape and fill the fills. It's okay to wallow on occasion when you have earned the right. Just don't ever allow yourself to live there. That's the kind of advice that I like to give. So when you and I were planning this podcast, you know, we talked about, well, I don't really talk a whole lot about treatment itself, you know, yeah. Yeah. and I didn't want to focus yeah. on that. And, and, yeah. and that's fine. yeah, yeah. Because this is the stuff, this is the heavy stuff. I mean, when the treatment right. is over, 
you remember that it sucks, but you, you do move on from it. This, this is tattooed on you. Right. Forever. Mm-hmm. And I do think we have a tendency as survivors to, to, to feel like, to feel like we are, we have to act like we're superhuman. Mm-hmm. So I've had a few people say to me, it's been, it's been a few years for this, but I've had a few people say to me when I'm like stressed out about something, well, aren't you just happy to be alive? You shouldn't sweat the small stuff, right? And I'm like, oh, cool. So, so now you are erasing and negating my ability to be a normal human being with normal human emotions. So now I can't get frustrated about the stupid crap the same way you do. That's right, kind of not right. fair. It's like you just survived this big whole thing. So everything should just be sunshine and roses. Roses. Again, no, it's not. You're human. <laughs> First, and we I, should I be allowed not, to be but human. But nor should it be. And I, yeah. I completely agree with you. I mean, I think it's really important just on a human level. You're allowed to have feelings. You're allowed to feel what you feel. And I, I yeah. read your post this morning and I'm, you brought it up before I did because I know that obviously wasn't anything we had talked about. Yeah. Our, our <laughs> I'm in your head, girl. you also beat me to the punch because that's kind of how I end each episode of what would you tell them? Ah, Um, but I, I know we had talked about this before and, um, it really, that did stick with me in the fact that, um, I guess I didn't necessarily think about the fact that people do kind of unwillingly put you on this pedestal and because you are a survivor, you kind of are everybody's superhero in a sense. Um, and that, and I, and I'm assuming people do that, you know, for people who are also diagnosed as, you know, Hey, this person survived. So now there's hope. And I imagine that has yeah, to absolutely. be also emotionally draining and exhausting for you. Yep. Um, yeah. So, and I know you had talked about initially, you know, once you were moving forward and after treatment, you had started working with um, some groups, but tell me a little bit more about that and your experiences with kind of, in a sense, trying to be that superhero. Yeah. Yeah. So you are definitely put on a pedestal and it's a lot of pressure. So Mm -hmm. first off, just to finalize that part of it, it is a lot of pressure. I don't like being called a hero. I don't (laughs) like being called anything other than who I am, because I did the same thing. I feel like anybody else would have done in my situation. Um, so, so there's that, but, but there is this air and this feeling of, Oh, I've got to be perfect now and happy all the time because I survived. And that's just, it's just not fair. It's just not the case. Um, so yeah, that what you said about people reaching out to me, which still happens, every single day because I'm finally starting to speak out a bit more about my experience and we'll talk about how I got there. But, um, at the beginning I got connected with some organizations. I met some other survivors and people going through chemo and there were moments when it was really healing, but there were, it it led to a lot more trauma for me. Mm -hmm. It led to a lot more loss for me because if you remember, I said I had a 20% shot of living five years. Right. So out of the one in 78 women that will be diagnosed with ovarian cancer in their lives, most of them are late stage diagnosis like me. And the survival rate at this point is about 30% for women like me. Mm -hmm. So if you do the math, that's a lot of loss. And every woman that I created and fostered a relationship with passed away. So it's just like pain on pain on pain. Right. So that wall, I put a brick. The next one passed away. I put another brick up. Okay. Now I'm just going to do the whole next layer. All right. Now let's go ahead and do four more layers. That wall, I, I shielded myself for the next eight years. And I mean, everyone handles grief and trauma in their own way, and there's no right or wrong way to do mm-hmm. it. Right. I do think I was honoring my own needs, and I was setting boundaries for myself that were absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm glad that I've released, I kind of, uh, thanks to a friend that we're going to talk about in a bit, I was able to get out that sledgehammer and knock down that wall. Mm -hmm. And it's been great. And I've learned, I'm also 11 years older, 12 years older. So I know how to set boundaries a bit better now. <laughs> as, as, as we learn, comes, as we grow older. Yep. Comes with age, doesn't it? Yeah. So I'm better about reaching out to women and allowing them to reach out to me to ask questions and to get that hope because this is the thing. I am that hope. There are not many of us out there that are diagnosed at my stage. They're still alive. Right. So who am I to withhold the hope from the people that need it? Right. I just had to honor myself for a while first yeah. um, to get to that point because it was really hard with women. I mean, I even got this yesterday. What diet are you on? How do you eat? What kind of supplements do you take? How did you survive this? Mm -hmm. And this woman that's asking me this is in her second recurrence. Oh, she's no. been told she's terminal and she wants me to tell her how I survived. Yeah. And I can't do it. <laughs> I mean, right. you, you've probably seen me say this as well. I don't have the silver bullet. I wish I did. My gosh, I wish I did, but I don't have the silver, silver bullet because there's not one. The only silver bullet is early diagnosis right. and we need a screening test for that. Um, and that's beyond my pay grade. So I can't give them the answers that they're looking for. And I shied away from that for a very long time, but now I realize that just the conversation gives mm -hmm. them hope, just right. the face to a diagnosis 12 mm -hmm. years later gives them hope. Who am I to withhold that? So that leads me to meeting Brittany Crosby. <laughs> you ready to go there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Um, okay. I, I will preface it with um, the fact that I, for our listeners, never met Brittany in person, but because of her friendship with Mandy and how open they both were about everything Brittany was going through and Mandy's support of that. I felt like I'd known Brittany my whole life. Um, so <laughs> and that's just her personality anyway. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. just, just through social media, you could see how big her personality was. And yeah. I yeah. wish I, I wish I had had the opportunity to, to get to know her, um, yeah. one-on-one, -on -one. but, um, yeah, so let's, um, so you met Brittany. Um, so you, you had your friend Holly, correct? Who yep. reached out to you through yep. her Teal Heart Foundation. Yeah. So just a little bit of background on who Holly is. Mm -hmm. Holly and I went to high school together and she was a year younger than me. So we met, I believe I was a senior and she was a junior and we were friends and then I moved and she moved and life went on and mm -hmm. you know, you stay in touch via Facebook. And so when I got diagnosed, she supported me, she messaged me. Uh, she was very, very sweet, but never in a million years did I think that, uh, I think it was six years later, she would be the one messaging me with the diagnosis. Mm. So Holly was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. I think it was in 2015 because I think she just got her five-year uh, checkup done and out of the way. So thankfully, Holly was diagnosed early. She was diagnosed at stage one, which is just sadly really rare. So I'm so, so thankful for that because survival rates go up to like 95% or mm -hmm. something when you're diagnosed early. Wow. So thankfully she was, and she went on to create a foundation called Teal Hearts Foundation. It was Team Holly at the beginning, and, and she's since uh, changed to Teal Hearts, but one thing that she does is she, uh, she's a consultant for 31. You know, they do like the bags and purses yeah. and things. They do these really awesome, huge totes that are just fantastic. <laughs> the laundry bag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so she signed up as a consultant for 31 just so she could start getting discounts to make chemo bags for women going through ovarian cancer. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so she would get all these necessities and things together. She would put them in a bag and she would deliver them to infusion rooms at hospitals or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's how she got started. And then, of course, women started reaching out to her. I was just diagnosed. I was diagnosed. I had no someone that was diagnosed and so on. So she messages me on Facebook um, 
man, would this have been 2017, I guess? Probably so. Time flies when you get older too, by the way. Um, so she messaged me and she said, hey, there's a girl that lives down in the Austin area that was just diagnosed at around the same age and at the same stage as you. Mm-hmm. Would you be, be willing to reach out? And I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. if you want me to, I guess I will. Cause I had all like, that was years after the washing my hands of becoming friends right. with ovarian cancer women. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't a huge fan of it. But I did it because Holly is my friend and I wanted to honor her in this. So I reached out and kind of fostered a little bit of a relationship with this girl. She was 27 years old, diagnosed stage 3C, and I was 28 when I was diagnosed at stage 3C. So, you know, a a lot of mutual understanding there. Yeah. A lot of parallels with where you guys were at in life. And although I was paralyzed who am I to forego that hope, right? Like we've already talked about. Right. So we talked on Facebook a little bit here and there. And then um, she, her, her family and her husband's uh, job where he worked hosted a Zumba fundraiser for her 20 minutes down the road. So I decided to go. <laughs> and for that 20 minute drive, I was having heart palpitations. <laughs> I was crying. I was shaking. It was so traumatic for me. And I, I pulled up in the parking lot and I cried for another 20 minutes before I went in. And um, I introduced myself to her and to her family and her husband's family. And I am so thankful that I did it, number one. But I watched, I watched myself go from a complete random stranger to this beacon of hope, because if this girl can make it, Brittany can too. Mm -hmm. And it changed my life. So that's how it started. And very, very quickly, Brittany and Reese became our best friends. Mm -hmm. And we did everything together. And we, we hiked, we climbed mountains together. We, we climbed, we hiked the Grand Canyon together. We went to concerts. We tie-dyed. We did, I mean, everything. We loved on our puppies. Everything we could do together, we did. And to back up a little bit, after the Zumba fundraiser, I came home and I, I set my husband down. I, I am remarried, by the way. I know we'll talk about that. Uh, so <laughs> all's well that ends well, huh? But I set him down and I said, um, okay, this is the deal. I know you weren't around when I was sick. I know that you're aware of how this goes. I just met someone that's going to become our best friend. And I need to explain (laughs) to you (laughs) what this is going to look like. Um, And I said, this is going to be hard. This is going to be emotional, but I have a feeling this girl's going to be worth it. And holy crap, she was, I mean, (laughs) you know, you feel like, you know, her and you've never even met her. She just, was so when I spoke at her uh, celebration of life back in no December, I think it was December 6th, if I recall correctly, of 2019. One of the things I said about her is she was so unapologetically herself. Yes. And I just, man, I just love that about her. So I've. Her. So she taught me a lot about freeing myself and really, I guess kind of what I mean by that is, is literally freeing myself from the bondage of cancer, the after effects and my own mindset in the, in the way that it shifted after my diagnosis. And she also taught me to live life on purpose and that's her mantra. So, you know, we all, I think Eve, you even have one of the live life on purpose shirts, don't you? Okay. I do. I have that. And the, um, sometimes the, uh, it's the, the best view is after the hardest climb. Hardest climb. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So she had a lot of good ones. So two days, I believe it was two days, three days before Brittany passed away. She was ziplining on the highest zipline in the, like that's the way the girl did it. 
she just, she lived life on purpose. Mm -hmm. And because of her, like I said, I was able to get that sledgehammer out and I was able to knock down those walls. I realized how much I was also missing out by not letting these women into my life. You know, so not only was I withholding hope from them, I was missing out on some really genuine good friendships. And when you find that friend that's worth it, yeah, she's just worth it. She's, she was worth the pain. Mm -hmm. She was worth the loss. She changed my life completely. So I, I'm just, I'm so thankful for her. And of course, Reese and, um, and what they did for me and for Blaine as well, it just really, that's when things started to shift for me. Um, so with that shift, because you had mentioned before with putting those walls up after having loss after loss after loss, mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately opening yourself up again um, and having this amazing woman and friendship in your life, resulted in more loss. It resulted in more loss. Yeah. So how are you feeling now? Because with that shift that Brittany brought to your life of maybe not focusing as much on what happened to you, but what have you learned? How do we grow? How do we keep moving forward? Mm -hmm. um, did the loss of Brittany, do you feel like that set you back at all? Or does that just drive you more? Because I know how it looks to me from the outside, but I'm wondering. Which is, which is what? You I'm keep curious. Pushing forward. Yeah. You keep pushing forward. Correct. Um, I mean, you, you posted something a week or so ago about, um, I think you were on your Peloton and there was, mm -hmm. you were having one of those days of just like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I won't do it. I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. And then you did it. You like yeah. hit this big milestone for yourself and then just break down because I'm sure you're feeling every possible feeling at that moment. Yeah. But as someone on the outside, to me, it looks like you continue to move forward. But how were you feeling? I mean, were you feeling like, okay, well, here I am again after opening myself up or I just lost my best friend, but she wouldn't want me to take any steps backward? Kind of where where were you or where are you? Yeah. So a year, almost exactly a year, about 11 months before Brittany passed away, we almost lost her. She was in the hospital. Things were not looking good. Reese called myself, Blaine, and our friend Randallin to come in to spend a couple of days with her at MD Anderson. And we knew it wasn't good, but we, we didn't realize how dire the situation was. We actually signed her DNR and her living will that day. Um, which like just, oh, oh gosh, it's just, it was so hard. But after that, we sign our sister's living will and DNR, and then we get out paint my numbers and gingerbread houses. And we just, <laughs> we just laughed and played games and enjoyed our time. So if that is not a defining factor of how I got through this and what she did for me, I don't know what is. She just... I mean, we had conversations about it, but in her mind, she was always going to survive this. Mm -hmm. But we all knew that the likelihood was slim. Because of that, two things. Number one, we never wasted a moment. So she taught me to never waste a moment. She was in my life for a reason. Mm -hmm. And she left my life, unfortunately, for a reason. And I was prepared because I, you know, think about the day I met her. I went home and I set Blaine home and I said, this is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about this now. So I was prepared, number one, but secondly, she wouldn't have it any other way. And, you know, I've said before, I have two ways. We, we as humans that experience trauma and loss and pain have two ways that we can go with this. We can either wallow in it and let it bury us and waste our lives, whatever amount we've got left, or we can pick up. We can move on. We can honor our feelings. We can honor our emotions and respect them because that's a part of healing. But moving on is also a part of healing. She doesn't want me to, the girl was, she was never stagnant. <laughs> she was, she was ziplining three days before she passed yeah. away. She does not want me to remain stagnant. So in fact, uh, I guess it was about a month ago, me and 
Reese and Brittany's dad climbed Long's Peak, which is a story for another day. It was a <laughs> 15 hour long hike and legit like climb up the side of a mountain. But anyway, uh, we, we scattered her ashes on top of Long's Peak. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that we did that, and one of the reasons that Reese decided to have her cremated is because she never stayed still in life. <laughs> so why would she want to stay why? in one place yeah. Yeah, afterwards? So we took her up to her favorite place in the world and we, and we spread her ashes. And I was okay with it. I'm surprised sometimes by how okay I am, but I, I'm thankful that um, I had the opportunity to process it. I, I just, you know, we all knew where this mm-hmm. was headed. Mm-hmm. And so I think I processed as much as I possibly could before it even happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so thankful to have had those three years with her. Mm-hmm. No regrets. No regrets. Yeah. 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 Even though it's painful at the times, no regrets. Well, sure. I mean, you just, Loss is hard to deal with yeah. in general, but I can't imagine losing somebody to the same battle that you fought. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure continue. it's always like you said at one yeah. point, it was this little cloud of worry yep. over you that's there. Absolutely. Um, so I, I want to, I want to talk about Blaine for a couple minutes. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so with you coming home that day and saying, I met this amazing person. She and her husband are going to be our best friends now. Um, This is what could happen and what we might experience. Um, So again, from someone on the outside looking in, um, first of all, your husband makes me laugh because I think I've seen like one picture ever where he's actually looking at the camera. I can't with um, him sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like it's bad. I roll city. Like, you just take a picture. Oh um, my God. Girl, I have high tolerance. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I, some days I look at him like, man, she's, she needs like sainthood because I would be losing it. Um, but so with having Blaine come into your life, I know you mentioned you known him, but didn't really yeah. know him. Right. Um, but after diagnosis, treatment, you know, moving forward in life, um, but there's still, you have to have annual checkups. It's still yeah. you. It's a part of you. How did that conversation work as, you know, someone coming into your life to sit down and say, look, I had aggressive cancer. I survived it, but these are kind of the after effects. This is how I'm moving forward. I mean, Mm -hmm. how you, with mentioning even relationships you had prior shifted so much, how does that work for relationships like this? moving forward for you. Yeah. So this could be a podcast within itself. So I'll (laughs) stick to the high points here, but so to start out date number two, we had the conversation. Okay. I don't have time to mince words. I mean, and he needed to know at that point, I can't have kids. I don't have ovaries. And so for me, I mean, kind of awkward, right? Date number two, you're talking about kids already, but this is the way my life is going now. And if, if you, he needed to know so he could make a decision on whether he was going to get on this train with me or not. And right. if not, no harm, no foul. We're on date two. We'll hug and, and stay friends, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to have the conversation with him very early. And I remember him saying to me, well, I kind of had a feeling that you couldn't, and I've already thought about that and that's okay. And since then, he's told me multiple times, I chose you. Mm -hmm. I chose you. And um, I definitely, while we were dating, pushed him away out of fear multiple times. Mm -hmm. You know, like get them before they get you type situation. So um, I I did that. But for some reason, he always came back. (laughs) So, (laughs) So we just... We had to have the conversations that most normal couples wouldn't probably have on date number two, but he also needed to be aware of the fact that, yes, I did survive cancer, but he needed to fully and totally understand that that does not mean that I am 
cancer free. So let me explain what that means because this is important. Ovarian cancer is not curable, right? So there's, there's no cure, uh, which is also why survival rates are, they plummet so much as the, the cancer metastasizes and, and mm-hmm. the stages get later and later. Um, chemo, and you, you hope that you can at least make the cancer cells dormant. Mm-hmm. And so am I cancer free? We say after five years, air quotes, you are cancer free, like your likelihood of survival exponentially increases because you made Mm -hmm. it to year five. Mm -hmm. But do I probably still have cancer? The answer is yes. I probably still have cancer. It's a matter of, is it going to ever decide to wake back up again or not? Okay. And so, you know, not only is that, you know, that cloud that we were talking about that hovers over Mm -hmm. me every day of my (laughs) life, it always will. Um, there's a woman that I know here in Austin that's diagnosed stage 3C. She made it 11 years with no recurrences, and she is having her first recurrence right now. So the fear is always there. Right. So with that fear comes emotional trauma. And I, first off, I needed him to know that I potentially still had an expiration date. We all do. So let's not waste our life worrying about it too much. But at mm-hmm. the same time, know what you're signing up for. Right. Because I don't know where this is going to take us. Mm-hmm. So there's that. But also this emotional trauma that, that I do my best to not affect me on a daily basis. And I, I think I do pretty dang well, to be completely honest, but it's mm-hmm. there. It's there. I just don't allow it to suffocate me. But when you have that type of baggage, you know what baggage does to a relationship and to a marriage. Yeah. So we had to have that conversation because I had already been with someone who wasn't strong enough to hack it. Right. I owe it to myself to make sure that I don't get in that situation again. Right. And he owes it to himself to decide if it's something that he's willing to accept. I mm-hmm. mean, he, he could have been a widow two years after our marriage, you know, so he yeah. needed to know what this was about. Can't have kids. I, I mean, while we say I'm cancer free, no one really ever knows. So mm-hmm. this is, this is me mm-hmm. and you can, you know, take it or leave it. And I don't blame you either way. And hopefully, as you've said, he's such a nut. I mean, he's just like, <laughs> I mean, laughter, if laughter is medicine, then I am for sure like the healthiest person on the planet. However, <laughs> there are times that he doubles over laughing at himself and I'm just staring at him like deadpan because I just don't get it. So, <laughs> oh man. And my, I don't know how my eyes aren't stuck in the back of my head, like oh, I roll, my whatever. but I oh. am just so thankful that he took a chance on me. Yeah. And he deserves to be acknowledged for that. Yesterday, by the way, was our nine year anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So he really, he really stepped up here Mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't even know if I was willing to allow anyone to do. I wasn't going to get married again. I wasn't going to date again. None of it. And Mm -hmm. here he came six months later and you know, it just, he deserves to be commended for the things he's put up with. Cause I'm not always easy because I am traumatized, you know? Yeah. And he's handled it like a champ. That's great. I'm very thankful for him. <laughs> great job, Blaine. Thanks for making us laugh too. Hi, five, Blaine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't, maybe, maybe when I put up, um, your little announcement card for your episode, we'll throw on a Blaine with the unicorn. Um, <laughs> floaty up there too. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. People will see it and be like, okay, now we get it. Yep, now there we he is. <laughs> um, so one other thing I wanted to talk about is, as you mentioned, you know, trauma and grief stay with you and yep. you've had a lot in your life, especially, um, I don't want to say especially, but most recently, you know, in the last year with the loss of Brittany. Um, so how do you, well, I know how you do with that, but let's talk to, let's talk to listeners about, um, how you work through those tough days, um, how you work through those tough moments. So I am not one to sit still. I don't sit back and smell the roses. I never did before anyway. So that's really nothing new, but I am a creator. I am, I I like to make things. I, I'm not the best artist in the world, but I get my emotions out on a canvas with paint. Maybe, maybe I have, um, 
a paintbrush, but maybe I'm also just doing a, a acrylic pouring and I'm just designing and creating things that are beautiful, that make me happy and they make me smile. Mm-hmm. So art is a big part of my therapy. I also run and work out and do things of that nature for sure. Art is something though that time permitting is my go-to. It's my drug of choice, if you will, I guess. <laughs> and I mean, I've always done art, but life tends to get in the way and life gets busy. And so I move away from it, but I always come back. Mm-hmm. It's what makes me the happiest and it's what fulfills me. And I'm not the best artist on the planet, but I don't care. Does it make me happy? And it does. The answer is yes. I mean, when I have paint up to my elbows and it's like stuck under my fingernails and it's in my eyelashes and whatever, I am in the zone and I am in Mm -hmm. my place. So, I mean, there are multiple things that I do for emotional healing, mental healing and things like that, and also physical healing. But the art for me Mm -hmm. is a huge, huge uh, de-stressor, if you will. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're being modest because you are incredibly <laughs> talented. Oh, thank you. Um, for those who don't know my husband, he loves, loves roosters um, mm-hmm. and collects all sorts of rooster stuff. So um, Mandy was gracious enough to um, do two completely custom designs for him as um, gifts for me. So they're hanging up in our kitchen. Mm-hmm. And then we have another cute one she did. Um, when I think it was one of those days, you were like, it's rainy, I'm just going to paint. Um, and then you were selling them and then donating proceeds to yeah. um, ovarian cancer research. You have the one with the couple drinking. I do. At yeah. the, okay, the little martini yeah. glasses or yeah, something. The, in the city. the yeah, the okay. couple at the restaurant outdoors. Yeah, yeah I'll I'll remember our that now. So our cool. kitchen is adorned with um, Mandy Chambliss originals. <laughs> it's a shrine. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> uh, your, um, yeah, and some of your, was, is it your, was it your poor art that you were doing on canvases? That's what I've started doing. Well, COVID, thank you, COVID for all the free time, right? So that's when I started getting back into it again. So yeah, yeah, I I wanted to try something new. And so I've been going with the acrylic pour art and something called bloom art. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my new jam right now. Yeah, so the pour art uh, I have in my office as well. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. You do. You've got the set. <laughs> yeah, that color about scheme that. was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to tie it all together, I know you, you were talking about earlier what you would tell somebody who's mm-hmm. been diagnosed with cancer, um, ovarian cancer, and just look just let's just remind everybody. I yeah. think most importantly, the symptoms. Um, yeah. Because again, they're so common. Um, if you want to mention the symptoms again, yeah. and then just what would you tell you? What would you Absolutely. tell yourself 12 years Absolutely. ago? What would you tell somebody now? Okay, sure. So first off, the symptoms of ovarian cancer are a feeling of being bloated, a feeling of being full, and in essence, uh, getting full quickly or not being hungry frequent urination or changes in bowel symptoms or bowel habits, I should say, fatigue, lower back pain or abdominal pain. So those are the main signs and symptoms. Um, What would I tell someone? I always go back to what I wish I had known. First and foremost, before I say that, be your own. Be your own advocate. You know your body better than anybody else does. So be your own advocate. And also remember that doctors are human beings too, and they will make mistakes. So if you genuinely feel like there's something that's not right, if you are not your own advocate, who's going to be? So I think that's the most important thing, but I'll tie it up with what we've already talked about. When you have a cancer diagnosis, you are seen sometimes as superhuman. Sorry about the dogs. It's COVID, right? <laughs> you are seen as superhuman. And, and sometimes you feel like for the sake of your family and your friends, you've already put so much pain out of them that you just feel like you have to always be happy. It's okay to acknowledge that you're not always happy. You're still mm-hmm. a normal human that's allowed normal human emotions. Mm-hmm. And you, you have earned the right to... Feel the feelings when you need to. 
I'm just going to go for it. <laughs> you have earned the right to feel the feelings when you need to and and to accept that this is something that's really hard that's happening to you and you don't have to pretend to be okay all of the time when you're not. The biggest thing that my mom always told me is it's okay to wallow for a minute. Just don't let yourself get stuck there. And I think that's very important because I think a huge part of healing, the physical healing of the physical body is the emotional and the mental healing as well. It's also tied together. So let yourself feel, let yourself cry, let yourself scream. I remember thinking, man, if I could go to one of those places right now that just lets you chunk dishes on the walls, you know, like those places just let you trash the place. That would be amazing. Uh (laughs) So let yourself feel the things that you have earned the right to feel, but then pick up, move on and don't waste another second because you know, it sounds so cliche, but we're not guaranteed any time right. in our lives, you know, right. rather than right now. Right. So I just choose to not waste it. And, and I also would say to that, man, I have a lot of things I could say in, in terms of uh, recommendations for cancer patients, but it's also okay to be selfish. It's also okay to be selfish with your time, not selfish, like in a, in a nasty way, but selfish with your time, mm-hmm. selfish with who you give your time to selfish with your, you surrounding the people that are going to lift you up and build on your values Mm -hmm. and uh, make your life better just in general. I think it's just really, really important. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank Um, you. You know, you've been doing a lot of talks and a lot of um, different groups for ovarian cancer awareness month. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come talk with me and our listeners today. Um, cause I think it's a very, very important topic. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because again, and we'll keep reiterating this, that the symptoms are so easily to just, they're so easy to dismiss that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, if this podcast can bring awareness enough to at least just help one person, then I feel like we've done a good job. So absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, thank you so much. And, um, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening guys.